We are in our, our third week of our Thessalonian series, and this has been such, a, such an incredible uh, time to really sink into the Word for me, to really look at it and, and, uh, and think through what it's saying to us, and it's been so timely. So we are, last week, first week we did an introduction to the Thessalonians that's on the website. Last week we did the first verse of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, and that was it. This week we are going to cover verses 2 to verse 10, which completes the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. So we're going to pick up steam a little bit, but if you want to catch up on this series, it's all on the website, all on the podcast, and I think even the Facebook Live videos are, are on Facebook. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 10. Before we get into this word for today, can you imagine a world with no universal systems of measurement? Can you imagine that? It's something we don't really think about very often because we're so used to having standardized measurements and, and weights. Um, but what if we didn't have any universal standard of measurement in order to weigh and measure things? It's interesting to know that a standard universal uh, measurement uh, standard is a pretty modern invention, a product of the Enlightenment from about 200 years ago. The metric system was invented in France over 200 years ago, and at the time of its invention, and this is very hard for me to believe, but it's what I read in the article that I, I was reading about this, it's estimated that there were easily 250,000 different standards of units of weight and measurement in France alone, much less the rest of the world. There wasn't a standardized measurement or weights. And that was a hard number to, to believe, but that's apparently what, it's a, it's a lot. If not that, it's a lot. So today, as much as we Americans kind of hem and haw about the metric system, and we're constantly having to Google conversions when we're baking or cooking, um, the metric system, which was invented in France, is now the standard in every country in the world, except for the United States, Liberia, and Myanmar, also known as Burma. Those are the only places where metric system is not standardized. It's interesting to see how the metric system came about. After the French Revolution, top thinkers in the country set out to create units of measurement and weights based on science alone, very enlightenment kind of mindset. And so the, the meter was not invented arbitrarily, but these scientists created the meter based on what they saw in nature. A meter is to be one ten millionth of the distance from the North Pole to the equator. Scientists, you know, that's pretty, pretty nerdy, but they figured out what is one ten millionth of the distance from the North Pole to the equator, and that was the first meter. Very interesting stuff. So that's measurement, that's weights. We, we are blessed to have standards of weights and measurement today that we can all live by. And there's something very comforting about having some standards universals, if you will, of weights and measures. Because of those standards, we can weigh our children and determine how much medication they need without doing harm to them. We can also uh, weigh out and measure out their medications. Uh, we can weigh our food at the grocery store, and we can determine that we are not overpaying for our groceries. Um, we can portion out our baking soda and our salt when we cook and bake and make sure our food isn't spoiled and, and, and is ruined. Uh, we can fill our gas tanks knowing that we are not being scammed from one pump to the other, even if it is very expensive. So there's something very helpful about standardized weights and measures. I had a very interesting conundrum the other day where I was at Stewart's pumping my gas, 
And for the first time, I saw that, that seal on the gas pump, and it said, if the seal is compromised, notify the management. And it had, like, a, a little cut in it. And I'm like, oh, man, i got to let the management know. These weights and measures are, are, are tampered with. But I'd never actually seen that happen. But you see that, that seal on gas pumps. It's a weight and a measure. We know we are not being scammed. And this is something that is very good. It's good to have a measuring stick. The only time we don't really like to see these standards of weight and measurement is when we stand on a scale and realize we've gained several ounces since last time we stood on it. But still, it's helpful. It's helpful. It would appear to me, looking at 1 Thessalonians, that Paul, Timothy, and Silas um, had a glowing review for the Thessalonian church. And it seems to me there's no good reason why we shouldn't look at the Thessalonian church as a standard of weights and measurements for us as we are considering what it means to be the body of Christ and to follow Jesus. Because of how glowing that the review was, um, this church can function as a yardstick for us, if you will, or a point nine one four four meter stick if you're in the metric system. None of the characteristics of the Thessalonian church are unique or limited to that fellowship. They're all universal, so we can easily look at ourselves with and measure how we're doing. And there's something so wonderful about being, to, being able to measure something. It's incredible to me how the spiritual life seems to people to be so subjective. You know, there's no objective way to see how you're doing. And everything else seems very measurable. But truthfully, you know, we can look at our lives. We can evaluate where we are at and how we are doing as Christians. That's what we looked at in our core values series. And that's why I made that tool available of the, of the survey of yourself to see how am I doing? How is my faith going? But the text of Thessalonians also functions as a great standard, a great yardstick of what a healthy church is. And since we are focusing not on when or how we will come back together, though those questions will be answered, um, we are concentrating on who we're going to be when we come back together. That's the most important question. So this is the perfect time for the Holy Spirit to take this standard in 1 Thessalonians and apply it to us and speak to us, convict us, and grow us. And who knows what God has in store for us hidden in the pages of 1 Thessalonians and how he wants to grow us. Let's start by reading uh, 1 Thessalonians. I'll start at verse 1, even though we covered that last week because it's, it's one verse. So let's read this together. Paul, Silas, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has been known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. 
like I said, a glowing review of the Thessalonian church and clearly a yardstick by which we can measure ourselves and see what God is saying to us. Interestingly, some of the only real um, conviction or, or direction that Paul gives is later in the letter, um, as far as correction goes, when he says each person should make an effort to lead a quiet life and work with their hands. Um, He's encouraging them to continue working their jobs because these people had so much faith in Christ's return, they felt like it was going to come right away. And so they, they were actually sidelined from their work because they were so uh, focused on Jesus' coming. Um, but, that, but that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to focus on the ultimate reality of what will be. And that is something we will see in First Thessalonians, that the hope of waiting on Christ is fuel for the current journey that we're on. And this is a healthy and good thing for a Christian to have this mindset. Uh, the reason, I think, that, I think that that idea of hoping in the second coming of Christ, of hoping for heaven, has fallen out of favor with people in our world today. And people look down on that kind of mindset. They say, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And so we kind of take the good truth that we should be preparing for Christ's second coming that could happen at any moment. We are in the end times. Um, we take that truth and we tuck it away and say, you know, we don't want to be those Christians who are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And we lose it altogether. But Jesus, the fact is, the testimony of Scripture is we are supposed to be people that are expecting and waiting on Jesus. And I, I think um, Rob Reimer said uh, in his new book, he said, the problem is not that we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. The phrase is more, people are so religious that they're no earthly good. That's the phrase. It's not bad to be heavenly minded. In fact, being heavenly minded motivates us towards love, justice, and works. It motivates us to, to use our resources for God's kingdom instead of for self-centered uh, things. It, it, uh, the, the, the heavenly reality inspires us to live in hope of Jesus Christ and his coming, and it causes us to change the way we're living causes us to do great things. And many of the social justice um, endeavors in history from emancipation of slaves to desegregation to women's rights to, um, to, uh, to all, all these things, racism, all these things, motivated by people that were believers, that were Christians, who were hoping in Jesus and the kingdom that he would bring and saying, look, this world system does not line up with Jesus' kingdom, so these things have to change. And so, you know, we have to recognize it's not a bad thing to be heavenly-minded. It's a bad thing to be religious. When you're religious, it's all about you. You're self-righteous. You're righteous for the sake of yourself. You're spiritually uh, intro uh, in, in, introverted and focused on yourself. But to be heavenly-minded is to focus on Jesus, and then through that to focus on the suffering and injustice of the world and to make a difference. That's what we're supposed to do in Christ. But I am, uh, I'm, I'm sidelining myself with, it, with this talk. But this, this is important. It's okay. To, to hope for the coming of Jesus, it's okay to be heavenly minded. This is our inspiration for living in the here and now differently. Because someday this kingdom, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of God. And Jesus' rule and reign will be exerted on this earth. And there will be justice for everyone. There will be salvation. There will be a judgment of, of perpetrators and evil people. Um, so you know, these are the things we hope for in Christ. The letter from the, the apostles, uh, Silas, Timothy, and Paul, to the church in Thessalonica is, is, a, is a strange one, according to scholars of ancient letters. 
because the form of the letter is very different from other ancient letters of its time. And it's even distinct, distinct from Paul's other letters that he wrote. Most ancient correspondence had a very short section of thanksgiving in the beginning of the letter, then it would move on to the rest of the letter. But this letter has confounded scholars that, that study these things because instead of just one thanksgiving section, it seems to be laced with thanksgiving. The whole thing is just laced with thanksgiving. And we will see this over and over again. And this notable kind of strange form of the letter with all this thanksgiving in it reinforces for me the joy that the Holy Spirit uh, felt for this church. The, the Paul, Silas, and Timothy were apostles of the church. They were people that were gifted to plant church and to start new work in, in areas where there was no gospel witness. And those three guys felt extreme thanksgiving because the Holy Spirit was manifesting his thankfulness through them for this church. And then uh, once the thanksgiving got to a ridiculous level, they, they started to keep on thanking God again for this church. And so much, so much joy and so much hope. If I was to write a similar letter to Paul and, and kind of write in his same form, I think it would sound something like this. To New Life Fellowship, I thank God for the hard work you are doing in yourselves as this pandemic continues on. I love how many of you have continued to meet in small groups online. I am heartened at your self-control and your patience during this time. I'm glad you are joining us for fellowship on Wednesdays and for worship on Sundays. I love how you are handling tragedy in your personal lives and suffering in your personal and family life, and also how you are using this time to reflect on yourself and evaluate your personal relationship with God and with his body, the Church of New Life Fellowship. I love to see your faces on Zoom and observe you as you act as a priest or priestess unto God in your own household, distributing the elements of communion to your family and friends, praying for one another, and seeking God together. You have been creative, and you have been courageous. I thank, uh, I thank my God for how you have chosen to do church with your family with the others in your household, how some of you have made a huge effort to call up others, to send letters, texts, emails, and other messages to one another, to FaceTime the lonely, to lift up the grieving, even all while being tested yourselves during this difficult time. You have even reached non-believers for Jesus and seen people become saved during this time. It amazes me and thrills me as your pastor. I thank God for you. You are doing so well during this trying time. It makes me thankful. I thank God for your faith, expressing itself in love for one another and for your, the community that we live in. In short, I thank God all day because of you. And it is not just me. Your love for God and for each other and also for non-believers is being reported to me constantly by people in the church and outside of the church, which again makes me so thankful for you and so blessed to be your pastor. In short, I am thankful. This is, this is the same sentiment that Paul expressed, this thanksgiving. And this is the true expression of my heart for you at New Life Fellowship. Um, and you can get an idea of the joy that, I, that Paul felt and the joy that I feel when I think of you. It's dripping from the heart of God, this thankful spirit for the Thessalonian church. And it's dripping, you know, it sounds weird, I guess, but from the elders uh, and the staff of New Life, we, we are thankful. We're full of it for you guys. As the apostles... Uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy continue to thank God for the Thessalonian church. They begin to call out the reasons they're thankful in the midst of that. 
And this is what is going to serve as the measuring stick for the kind of church that, not, that doesn't just bring a few people joy, but a church that makes God himself rejoice and have thanks, thankfulness. And I don't know about you, but I want our church to be a church that makes God's heart rejoice. I want it to be a church that makes God thankful um, for, for, what, for the work that happens here. As strange as that sounds, because it is his work from first to last, I want him to look at us, like the Bible says, the eyes of the Lord roam the earth, looking for people whose hearts are fully his. You know, there's something in the heart of God, a longing for the church to be the kingdom of God, to be a kingdom of priests unto himself, and to share, accurately share, his love with the world. And I want God to look at our church and feel rejoicing and thanksgiving, like he did for the Thessalonians. So as I, as I said, we're going to look at the reasons that God and the apostles are rejoicing in the church and giving thanks for the, for the church. Number one, God is rejoicing through the apostles because the Thessalonian church is a congregation that is proven to be rooted in God's grace and love. A congregation that had become a part of God's chosen holy people in a kingdom of priests, which he had always desired for himself from the beginning of time. He was rejoicing because the congregation had proven their devotion to Jesus Christ by how they chose to live. In verses 4 and 5, it says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. As we said last week, the Thessalonians were putting God at the center of everything. In verses 9 through 10 of our passage today, it was reported that the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. They evidenced their faith by, a really, by doing something that was really a big deal at the time, by turning away from idols. Idols were worshipped at this time, both in households and as a society, and there was a sense in which you needed to appease the gods in order to get your crops, you know, watered, in order to keep your family healthy and safe. You know, families would, would worship idols and hold some superstitious beliefs about the world. And if you were to break ranks with everybody on this and stop worshiping these idols, stop, you know, praying to um, the, these other gods, um, and stop ultimately worshiping the emperor, which is what people were doing at this time, worshiping the emperor of Rome. If you were to do that, you know, you are cutting yourself up from society. You are um, taking away your, your social group, and you are incurring in, the, in this culture shame on yourself and even shame on your family. Turning to Christ away from idols was, was seen as a betrayal in many ways of society and of family. And indeed, a betrayal of worshiping the emperor who was supposed to get all this glory as the son of God. That's what they called the emperor. Caesar was the son of God. Sound familiar? So if you were to say, no, Jesus is Lord and Jesus is the son of God, that's treason, right? That's treasonous. And that's ultimately why Jesus was um, crucified. And that's also why Christianity became persecuted. They refused to bow to Caesar. They refused to bow to household idols. So they lost both their standing as citizens in a way and their standing as members of their own nuclear families. It was a huge shift. And to Paul, 
Paul wanted to affirm this. There was all kinds of discouragement from, from choosing this way of following Jesus and making him the Lord of all. And Paul wants to say, actually, I know you're, not, you're getting a lot of negative feedback from outside, but this is a good thing. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that you were deeply convicted when you were converted to become followers of the way of Christ. You know, I'm, I'm thankful that you are suffering and even being ostracized and persecuted by family and friends and society so as to be obedient and faithful to your new Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, this is good. Paul can tell by seeing how these people are behaving that these people are chosen by God and truly God's disciples because they radically shifted their, uh, their lives. They radically shifted and adjusted their lives. The power of the Holy Spirit, literally signs and wonders, were accompanying the preaching of the gospel to the Thessalonians. And everyone was hearing about what the Holy Spirit was doing in that church. Everyone was hearing about what the Holy Spirit was doing in that church. For these people, Jesus' death and resurrection was the foundation for them. He was the focus of their faith, and his life was the model by which they lived. His coming, his second coming, defined their future and their hope as they waited for him. So they, they followed Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord. He was their foundation. He was their focus. He was their model, and he was their hope. These people were sold out for Jesus. So let me ask this question as we consider Thessalonians as a measuring stick of our own church fellowship and our personal uh, lives in Christ. What evidence is there in us that we have been rooted in God's grace and love? A congregation that has become part of God's chosen holy people in a kingdom of priests to God, that same kingdom he has always desired for himself, of priests unto himself. What have we left behind to follow Jesus Christ? In what way have we forsaken our own cultural idols to follow Jesus? How, what adjustments have we made to go against the grain, not in rebellion against society, but in submission to Jesus? Now, we have cultural idols, right? We're not, we're, by and large, we're not, uh, there's not um, idolatry in the sense that the Bible uh, folks, at least not in our part of the world, but we have cultural idols. We have, you know, one of them is definitely money. And the Bible says you can't worship both God and money. And actually the word is mammon, which is the word used for like a deification of money, like worshiping money, literally. But you, you can't serve both God and money. You're going to serve, you're either going to serve one and be a slave to it or serve the other one and be a friend and a servant of it. Um, so that, that's one of the cultural idols we have, money. And, and that's rooted, for many of us, in either power, which is another cultural idol we have, but security. You know, we find our security in our finances, in our, in, our, in our possessions, instead of in God. One of the idols that we worship in our culture is self-centeredness. It's really focusing on ourselves, and at the most, focusing on our families, our immediate nuclear family, and ignoring everybody else and everybody else's family um, and saying, you know, these are my people. This is what we're doing. Everything is going to be funneled towards the blessing of my family, which is really an extension of myself in a way. But we, we do. We worship that. We worship um, this self-centered perspective on ourselves and also on our immediate families. Now, we worship materialism. We worship consumerism. We worship sex. That's been well-documented. 
uh, and entertainment. You know, how have, we, how have we adjusted the way that we interact with these things for the glory of God? How have we changed so as to submit to Jesus and deal with all these different topics, which are all, many of these are good things that we make into idols. The human heart's so good at it. Um, how have we radically shifted our lives to reflect our allegiance to King Jesus, the rightful king of our lives? Have we made him the heaviest thing in our, uh, in our lives? Um, the Thessalonians had done a good job of making sure this was the case. And I would say that if you cannot think of anything that you have recently left behind to follow Jesus Christ, his teachings and his ways, it might be a good time to question the vitality of your faith. You know, Jesus is constantly calling us uh, unto himself and away from other things. You know, it is by grace that we are saved. It's not our works. It's a gift from God. But there is a work of faith as well. It's a hard work of putting, your, putting yourself in the mindset of Christ and then interacting with your life differently, leaving some things behind, holding on to Jesus. The Thessalonians did this. They did it well. And they did it with great persecution and suffering um, because they, they served another king. They didn't serve Caesar. They didn't serve themselves. They didn't serve their families. They worshiped God alone. So what is the Holy Spirit revealing to you as you consider what you've left behind or how you've changed based on your relationship with Jesus? Maybe it's a time to start thinking about this with God because there's more for everyone who will um, surrender more to God. God rejoices. God expresses thanksgiving when people make radical shifts in order to follow Jesus and obey his teachings. This is something that brings joy to the heart of God. Another reason God is rejoicing and giving thanks through the apostles for this church is because it is a community which is actually empowered by God's Holy Spirit. It is demonstrably powered by God's Holy Spirit. And this is my dream for new life. No, this is the elders' dream for new life and our wives, the elder couples. It is God's dream for new life that we would be a spirit-empowered church. You know, our, our families got together yesterday, the elders' families, and just talked about our dreams for the church. And, and fundamentally, it's that we would be a community of faith expressing itself in love in the power of the Holy Spirit. Our dream is that prayer would be seen as our primary work. As our core value says, prayer is the primary work of God's people. That prayer would become our primary work, reliance on God, and we would both see and become known for the power of God's Holy Spirit within our church body. Not just for us, but for the community. Paul says in verse 5 that the gospel came not just with words, but with power. And that could be translated as signs and wonders. That as the Thessalonians imitated Jesus and the apostles during severe suffering, they clearly did so by the power of the Holy Spirit. And everyone knew it. Remember, news about them had spread all over the world. Without the internet, without media, news of this little church had spread because God's Spirit was really doing some demonstrable, powerful things. One of my favorites, N.T. Wright, says this of the Thessalonians. He says, something happened to them when they listened to Jesus' message. A strange power gripped them. The power that Paul would tell them was the Holy Spirit at work. They would suddenly understand what God was saying. It would grasp their hearts and minds. 
Paul and his companions explaining the gospel to them would become excited as they saw the message take hold, make sense, and begin its work of transforming hearts and lives. You know, the gospel was spread in in the Thessalonian church by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how it happened. It wasn't a matter of wise and persuasive words on the part of the apostles. It was the power of God. Think about it. These people, many of them were Gentiles, non-Jewish people, right? So this largely, there are some Jewish people in the church, but largely Gentile church. First, they had to accept that, um, that Jesus was, um, you know, this, per, this Jewish man was God in the flesh. And then they had to accept uh, his work on the cross for them. There's so many barriers there, so many, you know, lacking the enculturation of growing up Jewish, not having the scriptures. It would take a lot to get someone like that who has no knowledge into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But by the power of the Spirit, the message gripped them. It made sense. And really, um, preaching is not supposed to be a matter of wise and persuasive words. It's a matter of power. You know, God taking human words and the words of his, his, his scripture, and bre- they're inbreathed by him, and they become powerful words from him for people. So in response to this, this thing that God is so thankful for in this church of being a church that's empowered by the Spirit, let me ask this question of New Life Fellowship. Are the power and gifts of God's Spirit evidenced in prayer, preaching, evangelism, and ministry at New Life? Are our people growing the fruit of God's Spirit within them in terms of their character? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and goodness. Are our people growing this fruit within them? Are we actually open to the continual leading of the Holy Spirit, not just in big picture leadings, but in the moment as we are worshiping him and serving him together? Are we open to that kind of leading? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves as we consider how to be a church that makes God thankful that we exist and makes him rejoice. Are we a church that's empowered by his spirit? Because Jesus says, apart from his spirit, you can do nothing. So you can do a, we know we can do a lot, but we can't do anything, if you know what I mean. Not, not anything that will really last. This whole Holy Spirit-empowered stuff is not a matter of being charismatic or Pentecostal or non-charismatic and non-Pentecostal. It's not a matter of tongues and prophecy. You know, many times all that stuff is just thrown around and it's all caricatures and it's out of balance. That's not what the work of God's Holy Spirit is all about. His dream, God's dream, is that we would be a people who have the character of Jesus Christ. That's the fruit of his Spirit growing within us. That we would identify and use the gifts of the Spirit he's given to each of us to express our deep faith in Jesus through love for the body, New Life Fellowship, the Church of Saratoga, the church at large, and for the world, the people that don't know Jesus. His lost matter, people matter to God. He wants them found. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He didn't come for the found. He came for the lost. We are to do the same. So I'm not going to fall into the error of saying you're either charismatic or not charismatic. Uh, you're either you know, speaking in tongues or you're growing the fruit of the Spirit. No. I'm asking God for a both and in this situation, that we, like the Thessalonians, would just be filled with God's characteristics, his fruit of his spirit, with his power, with his presence, expressing the fruit and the gifts of the spirit, building up the church, 
and convincing the lost ones that Jesus is king through signs and wonders, all done in love. That's my dream for the church, that we would be spiritually empowered. Character, gifts, signs and wonders. These are things that were happening in the Thessalonian church. They were things that caused God to have great rejoicing. They were things that were echoing through the whole area that this church was in. It's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit that this happened. That's the second reason God is thankful. First, he's thankful that they are in Christ. They are priesthood of believers. He's thankful that they're spirit-empowered. Spirit Another reason God is rejoicing and giving thanks through the apostles for this church is because they are a community that bears witness to the gospel. They actually bear witness to the truth of the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death on the cross. It says in verses 7 to 9, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. After receiving the gospel message about God's grace given freely through Jesus and being transformed by it, the Thessalonian believers, as a byproduct of receiving this message, literally trumpeted God's presence and power all around them in a big radius. And again, this is before the time of media or the internet. Um, they were trumpeting this message with power. Their faith was so authentic and God's work so profound that the gospel message rang out everywhere, the text says. Like a boulder being dropped into a pond, there were huge ripples and shock waves, and it raised the water level for the whole area around it for the blessing of the nations. You know, that's God's intention, that the church would be filled with the Spirit, that they would proclaim the gospel, and that they would nourish the nations of the world and bless the city they are located in. Um, that's God's dream for the church. So what is, what is really important to notice is that what, what made all of this happen was the Lord's message, the Lord's gospel. The good news about Jesus had sounded forth and the Thessalonians' faith in God, their response to the good news had sounded forth, and it was made known to the people in the community. So it's God's message, the Thessalonians' reaction, caused this huge boulder drop into the pond, waves, ripples, shock waves, raising the water level. Everywhere around this area, people were touched and blessed with the gospel message. What an amazing thing. that the, It's not just the gospel, but when a person takes that gospel in and expresses faith in God and then proclaims it, it's this powerful, powerful uh, thing. And God wants us to be people that proclaim the gospel. We have to kind of avoid the either-or trap here as well. Just as in, just as in the power of God, we, we, have, we have this either-or mindset sometimes. There's some churches that proclaim the gospel. They're very proud of that. And there's other churches um, that are kind of like, you know, we, we don't really talk about it, but we try to live it. God's message is he wants us to both proclaim and live his gospel. That's how it becomes powerful. The message, the results, the shockwaves. That's God's way. And we need to be like the Thessalonians who sounded forth this message of Jesus Christ who proclaim and live what they believe. 
If we will both proclaim and live the gospel, we will transform Saratoga. But if we will proclaim and live the gospel, then we will transform our city. I believe that. As we receive the message, as we are transformed by, by it, as we share it, God comes and does something that only God can do. It's like us making a little bonfire and then God throws gasoline on it. You know, when the Holy Spirit is at work um, in the churches, they proclaim and live the gospel. You know, great things happen. So a question for us from this is, are we a community that bears witness to the gospel in this way, both in living it and in proclaiming it to others? Are we living it and proclaiming it with our, with our deeds, with our words? Are we bearing witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? If we live what we proclaim and we proclaim what we live, God will amplify our signal. The final reason I can see in our text today that God is rejoicing and giving thanks through the apostles for his church is because they are a community that's characterized by faith, hope, and love. And the importance of this triad cannot be overstated. Faith, hope, and love. These three things are the essence of Christianity in Paul's mind. He shares them over and over and over again in the scriptures. It's something we have talked about here at New Life. In verses 2 to 3 of our passage, it says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What God is looking for in us is really somewhat simple. God wants to see our faith expressing itself in love. No one can see our faith, but when, we, when our faith is expressed in love, it's on display and people can see it. People can actually hold on to our faith when it's expressed in love. They can even be built up and find faith of their own as their witness of what God can do. And Paul, as I said, is constantly talking about this trio, faith, hope, and love, and saying this is the hallmark of a real church that's following Jesus. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we are, we're well aware of this passage. We've heard it in weddings that the greatest of these is love. Love must be the expression and the end of true faith for a believer. Love. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the thing that will happen in the end times is that because of the increase of wickedness in society, the love of most people will grow cold. What does that tell you about how important love is? When love grows cold, it's an indication that faith has waned. Faith, hope, and love. When your love grows cold, or when an entire church's love grows cold, it's evidence that their faith and their hope are waning or disappearing behind the scenes. When love is lost, everything is lost. Paul is very thankful for the Thessalonians' active faith in what God has done for them on the cross. He's also thankful for the fact that they worked hard to love each other well and also to love the world around them well. And that this faith and love was rooted in the hope that they had in Jesus' second coming. If the master is away, you want to be found ready when he comes back from his business trip, right? That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, 
in a way that can't be denied in John 13, 35, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Without love, our sharing of the gospel will be like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love. In the cultural climate in which we live, during election years, in the midst of politics, racism, murder, hatred, defensiveness, bitter feuding, contention from, from each human heart to each household to every nation. It would seem that we need to focus on faith, expressing itself in love extra hard, extra hard. Jesus said our love would grow cold in these times, and Jesus is right. Watch your love for your family in Christ, as well as for people in the world, as well as for your enemies. When your love wanes, your faith is waning too. If we love based on our hope in the second coming of Jesus, who we believe is going to set everything right and bring justice to this world, if we love based on that hope, then we can even love our enemies and forgive those who've sinned against us. Because Jesus is going to take care of every everything. We don't have to be the judge, jury, and executioner. We can just love. We're set free to love. And when our love grows cold, which we can see evidence of on the dashboard, when the light comes on, our faith is waning. Our hope is waning. We need to reorient ourselves on the hope of the second coming of Christ, when he will make all things new, wipe away every tear, and and eradicate sickness and death. And we need to keep our faith in the risen Jesus and the the, the spirit that rose Christ to life lives in us. Um, And we will have love to spare if we can focus on these things. Faith, hope, and love. But it's hard work. Again, love is something that can be grow cold. Love has to be cultivated. Love has to be tended to. And when you see your love fading, you know you need to, you need to figure out what's going on inside of you. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Paul commends the Thessalonian church. He thanks God because of their work produced by faith, their labor labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must anchor ourselves in the love of Jesus Christ by having faith in Jesus and hope that he is coming to set things right. We are living in the last days between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. We need to keep an eye on our love. And when it begins to grow cold, we, we must realize we're losing more than we think. We're losing our faith, we're losing our hope. We need to go back to those things and rekindle love. The Thessalonians had faith, hope, and love, and they were doing it well. And God would say to us, keep an eye on your work produced by faith, your labor be prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we, as we think about not when and how we'll come together, but who we will be when we come together. The correct question is, are we a community known by our faith, hope, and love? As individuals, are we known that way? And our reputation as a church? Is this what characterizes us? This is all that matters. So Paul, you know, he, there's a, he says a lot in this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. He commends them and encourages us. Are we rooted in God's grace and love? 
Get rooted in God's grace and love. Are we empowered by God's Holy Spirit? Get empowered by his Holy Spirit. Are we bearing witness to the gospel and letting it change us? We need to do that. Are we characterized by faith, expressing itself in love? Are we characterized by the hope we have in Jesus who will set all things right? These are the things we're looking at in this series. We're going to sing a hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous, Wonderful Cross. This is a focus on the gospel, a focus on the suffering servant who gave it all and gave his life for us out of love. And it's our response to offer ourselves back to the creator in response to all he has done in the gospel. Bless you as we go today. Now to him, unto him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you in his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to our only God and Savior, crowned in majesty and glory in Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.